Okay, here we go. April 22nd, 2012, uh, lecture discussion number 65 on the Book of Romans. And um, as a way of explanation, as well as a way of catching everyone up, uh, it's going to be valuable to repeat the process some today. We are solving what many supposed Bible teachers would mistakenly call the conflict between Romans 4 and James 2. Very common to find men and women who are, like I said, uh, supposed teachers declaring emphatically that there is an issue, that these two passages in Scripture are not uh, consistent. And that, of course, um, like I said, very common. It's a mistake. But let me give you the example that they use the most often. I'll quote uh, Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work, does not work, but believes, but believes. So you see the, the contrast r- immediately in uh, does not work in Romans 4, 5, but believes. In other words, there's this opposite uh, di- di- uh, 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 what am I trying to say there? Paradigm, this opposite between does not work but believes, but to him who, or work and believes, but to him who does not work but believes on him, uh, Christ, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness or salvation. So, if you believe on Christ and and you do not have a works-based system of salvation, your faith of belief will result in salvation. What's implied? That your works-based system will not result in salvation. It can't get any clearer than that. But now here comes James 2.26, and it says this, Faith without works is dead. And so immediately, like I said, many, many teachers have grabbed the two of those and have manipulated them to their advantage. And sadly, over the years, there's been no shortage of control-based, works-based religious sects. Sects, I can barely say it. Who have risen up and and they exploit what they insist is a contradiction. Uh, and And many, by the way, claim to be Orthodox Christianity. That's especially more common today than it used to be. But it's nonetheless, as I said, the case all over the place. And they see this contradiction, they claim. And they have done so, and they continue today to do so, to uh, reap great profit. And uh, who is shocked by that? All of that, the contradictory-based position on Romans 4 and James 2, all of it is wrong. Just flat wrong. No other way I can do it or, or say it, in, it to leave any other option for you. It's all wrong. And it's been wrong for centuries. And it's still wrong and it'll continue to be wrong. It'll also continue to be profitable. And here's your choice, really. It's either misguided or lazy scholarship or not, which means it's deliberate. And as you know, I side with premeditation. I think that it is deliberate premeditation. And I conclude uh, that way because of the steps required, or what I also call the anatomy of it. 
you don't end up in a position that says that Romans 4 and James 2 are inconsistent, are in conflict, are contradictory. You don't do that by accident. In other words, what I mean by that is to reach where these people are, these arbiters of salvation, and that's what they are. They have established themselves as umpires in a sense where they are the ones who decide whether or not you are saved based on a system that they have put in place. And they use James 2 more than any other verse they can find in all of Scripture, and they declare it to be in authority over every place that is grace-based. So in other words, they throw out the whole of Scripture because they have been able to manipulate the book of James. So these arbiters of your salvation, to get where they are, to get to a place where essentially they are paid to ensure to determine your salvation or salvation of others. So in other words, they are enriched by their position where they decide who and who, and who is saved and who is not saved. Uh, and I say that that is essentially the selling of salvation. That's what's happening. You have to be a member of my particular group, as you've heard me say many times. As an example, you have to be the mem- a member of a particular group. And if you're not a member in good standing, which means what? You're not contributing. And what is it that you're not contributing? Money. Then I have determined that you are not saved by my authority that you have foolishly given me. I want you to look up John uh, 2, oops, 13 through 16 about what is that? a very important place in the Bible. You should have it immediately at your forefront. It is where Christ does something. It's famous in that sense. Uh, he comes into uh, the temple where what's going on? They're selling salvation. And he tears it to pieces. Selling of salvation is the opposite of God's plan of salvation. So to get there to the place where you want to do this as a leader of a religious order or a religious group or even an Orthodox Christian group, that is not happenstance. That's a series of purpose steps and uh, it needs to be identified as such. Jesus Christ ends the selling of sacrificial animals. You cannot sell a sacrificial animal. What is the sacrificial animal a picture of? It is a picture of the blood of Christ. You cannot sell the blood of Christ. Salvation cannot be bought or sold. It can't be earned. And that is what Christ is ending at John 2. You can't make a mistake there. So if I am selling salvation, if I'm deciding that James 2 is where salvation can be determined by my system of works, I have to ignore John 2. I have to ignore all of Romans. That's not easy to do. That's why I think it's premeditated. It's deliberate because of the prophet and sent. I one time, and, and um, I, I go to meetings, as you know, where I'm not very popular. You're stunned to hear that. And I ask questions like this. Because people tell me all the time, boy, I wish I could be you. Okay, they don't tell me that all the time. <laughs> I just kind of added that. No, I, actually what they mean by that is that uh, our church is what is called a founded church, which means, and we're still all original. Uh, we have had many difficulties here, um, and that's because uh, the pastor was naive. And that, I was explaining that to Ken. Had I known what the job required when I took it, I wouldn't have taken it. 
I think, I think that's, yeah, that's funny, but it isn't really. It's uh, more sad. But that's really the truth. I, I came into it thinking something that wasn't true, that all I had to really do was just teach. And that's not how churches function. Churches are very unusual uh, creatures. So uh, it helped to be naive in order to do the job. And now you're, you kind of get stuck in it. It's, uh, it's almost like a tar baby uh, scenario. Nonetheless, you don't do this by accident. And to find yourself in a position where you are selling salvation or putting yourself in a position of authority, that isn't an accident either. How does somebody become a leader of a control-based religious order, a seller of salvation? Why would they want to be in that position? And that's where, to finish my story, people will come to me and say, because you're the founder, you don't have all these problems. And because you're the founder, you're doing really well financially. So I ask the question at these meetings that I go to, how many of you, if I took your salaries away from you, would be full-time pastors? Let me put it a better way. How many of you, if you had my salary, would be full-time pastors? See, they don't call me full-time. They call me, uh, what's the name? i got to think of it. Bivocational. That's what they do because it's important, it's necessary for me to continue working. I don't have a whole lot left in me. Jane proved that to me the other day. I, I, uh, I tried to work a full day as hard as I could physically, three different jobs. I can't remember what day it was. What day was that? Friday. And I didn't make it. I cried all day Saturday and most of this morning, didn't I? But you see, you take the money out of the system and it's scary what will happen to it. How does somebody then become a leader of a control-based religious order knowing that they're selling salvation, knowing that they're in violation of John 2? Why do they want to be in that position? I think the answer is the profit incentive. That's a very serious issue and you've heard me talk about it quite a bit lately because of the rich man typology that's all through the Bible. I know what the rich man typology is. I know what the rich man is a symbol of. It is a symbol of a person who is physically based, not spiritually based. Uh, For a pastor to be in that position is very, very solemn situation. See, let's keep going then. Who desires that Scripture be in error? I make the decision that John... I'm sorry, that James 2 is in conflict. James 2 is in conflict with Romans 4. What am I saying? Um, What am I saying there? I've just declared something. I'm supposed to be the leader, the biblically based guy. What am I just saying to you? I'm saying that the Bible is in error. There's an error. There's a contradiction. And if there's one error in Scripture, what must I now do with the Bible? I throw the whole thing out. It's based on the whole purpose is that there is no errors. It's inerrant. It's inspired in its original form. It's perfect. Who who wants to be the guy that makes this decision? 
What would make you want to be the guy that says there's an error in Scripture and none of it is of any value? How many churches today do you think have a position that the Bible is not inspired? What percentage? It's very high. Very high. And I want to know why you want to be in there. And what got me interested in this is I went to a seminar a long, long time ago where the man stood up. He was speaking in a Bible college at the time, and he reflected on his sermon. He asked the Bible students that were graduating. So these are seniors, or they're graduate students with PhDs, and they're ready to enter the seminary. And there was about a hundred of them. And he asked what is really a very simple question. How many of you believe Jesus Christ is God? And he got less than half. And it stunned him. He knew there would be some. So he wanted the ones who decided that, or who had made up their mind. I'm going to be a pastor believing that the Bible is in conflict, is in error, and that Christ is not God. That's what I'm going to do. Who thinks that way? Why would they think that way? What was the answer? Why were they pastors? Money. It's a good job. It's indoors, no heavy lifting. <coughs> which is the exact opposite of my jobs. Which The ones that are indoors are the most miserable. But yes, who, that's why they do it. And plus they get what? A lot of recognition. A lot of authority. High pay. A lot of power. And that's what's going on. And so you end up in these kinds of positions. So be very, very weary, or leery, sorry, weary as well. Be very wary, weary and leery of anybody who begins to tell you that James chapter 2 is in opposition to Romans 4. And they want that to be true. That's a particular kind of person that frankly is frightening. But it's quite common today for all kinds of media and theological um, commentators to declare the Bible to be evil, because ultimately that's what I'm doing, isn't it? As soon as I say the Bible is wrong, I'm in big trouble here now. I'm going to progress to what is obvious. I'm going to progress that the Bible is a book that promotes evil. That's very common in the media today, and we're going to deal with that here a little bit soon. Soon can mean a year from now, as you know. But for today, here's something I cannot repeat enough. If you ever find yourself in a position where you have decided that the Bible is inconsistent or in error or in conflict with itself or that God is petulant or erratic, capricious, alterable, or has any attribute that is flawed or evil, if you are finding yourself there, even for a brief instant, and look, I understand that we get upset and we get sad and we get frustrated and we do it. But if you're there for any instant at all, immediately you should recognize that you're bathing in ignorant heresy. You're wallowing in it. So the obvious question immediately rises up. Do you want to stay in ignorant heresy? What's the answer for most people? Yes. They like it. And they're not leaving it. I'm wrong. I want to stay wrong. makes me feel good to be wrong. I like it. Or will you search out the truth? It's okay to not know. It is not okay to stay not knowing. 
Will you search out the truth? Cast off your error. Set your error aside. Immediately recognize, okay, that can't be right. I can't, this can't be true. It cannot be true that James 2 is in conflict with Romans 4. If I think it is, even for an instant, something is wrong with me. Look in the mirror. Go home. Write on your mirror. Wrong. So that when you look at it, you can know, that's me. Whenever I think things like this. Now, so it's okay to be wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong. Oh, yes, they do. Because again, there's money in being wrong. But who wants to stay wrong? That's another issue. So retrace the steps that put you in the ditch and try again. If you have anything that puts God, like I said, as petulant or capricious or changeable or evil. I run into people all the time who are very, very firm believers that God is evil. But because God is the author of evil, evil therefore is good. Now that's a convoluted logic. That's what they're at, and they hold to it as fiercely as they can. And they want to believe that God is this harsh, angry, violent killer. They want it. And God is not killing them. Who is He killing? You. Okay? And that for today is the warm, fuzzy, seeker-sensitive, fluffy-wuffy introduction. And it's now behind us, so you can relax. And now let's ask the obvious questions about James 2 and Exodus 21. That is where we left off. James 2, the solution to James 2, the way you figure out it's not in conflict with Romans 4, which is what we're doing, is the first thing you do, the first trail you go, is to Exodus 21. That is where we have the Hebrew servant that plainly says, and is also the Hebrew servant that is beaten. That's where you find the information that solves James 2. Also, you read Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. That is also where you figure it all out. I hope you do at least. That's our plan for today. That's what we're going to try to do. And we find the complement to Deuteronomy uh, 21, 18 to 21 in John 20. Let me make sure I get the verses right. 26 through 29. These two are side by side. And they help you solve this along with going here. So you put those three together, or four together in this case, but these two are really one, so I'll call it three. And then you solve this problem that is James 2 and Romans 4. It's not really a problem, it's just a journey to figure out what God is trying to teach you. Right? So let's read all this stuff um, back to back and, and be about the work of this. So Deuteronomy 21, 18, and this is a test. Deuteronomy... 21.18. And again, I'll read it, and you should know it's a test. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, now, what's the most important word there so far? If. 
Because if we were reading it today, whoops, the word wouldn't be if, what would it be? When, yeah. When you have a stubborn and rebellious son. But it doesn't say that. And right off the bat, there's your clue that something special here. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders, of his city. This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones so that you shall put away the evil from among you and all Israel shall hear and fear. What do you think of that? Did you conclude? This is the the passage called the rebellious son. And it's readily used by the atheistic monists of today in the media and elsewhere to attack the character of God and then therefore exposing their illiteracy and their hatred. But let me just start again. Let me ask you a question. How old's the son? What did you decide? I heard all kinds of numbers. What did you decide in your mind? Don't you think that's important? But first... If you have in any small way, and I looked at your faces, if you have in any small way, likewise, as the atheistic monists do, begun to accuse God of being unfair or violent, if you will, or vicious or harsh or whatever you want to say, as the world also says eagerly, um, All of those adjectives result ultimately in calling God evil. So if you read that and you think that that is something that is... What is it? I just read that. What is it? What's the right adjective for that passage, the rebellious son? There's two things that are in it that you just never hear. One of those things is love. The other is goodness. Did you see love and goodness in there? That is the test. If you did not see love and goodness, then what did you probably think? Evil. God is evil. He's killing this poor boy. Why don't we give the boy a chance? He's having the whole city kill him. God is what? I do. I do a whole lot better than God here. You're thinking things like that, then you have no understanding of the passage at all, and you are wrong-headed, misguided, and you have to say, "Okay, what what's the matter with me? How did I have this impression? Because this impression got to cast off and figure out what's really here." So if you're already doing that, you didn't even last 15 minutes into the lecture. Stop. Because I don't want you to go that direction ever. Start instead asking, what does this mean really? Because it can't mean what you just thought. It can't. Any more than James 2 can be opposite of Romans 4. It can't mean that. Get rid of that kind of thinking. So, what does it really mean? It can't be the heresy that leapt into my mind. 
So what is the true interpretation? What is the true meaning? Remember the rule, (coughs) or one rule. (coughs) Find Jesus Christ in the passage. He is in the passage. That's why I said it has got love and it's got goodness in it. And it starts out, by the way, with the word if. Very important to have this all put together so that you start correctly. Where is the love and the goodness? Because it's got to be there. Jesus Christ, the Christology, is on every page. There is a portrait of Christ here. And if you don't find the portrait of Christ, you're going to be led into disarray or you're going to go there willingly in confusion. So then ask the obvious questions. I have, if I have a stubborn and rebellious son, what exactly doesn't this son obey? Specifically. And by the way, it says, you shall put the evil, the evil. What's the obvious question? God calls this what? The stubborn and rebellious son. What's he calling him? What's at stake here? You have to get this out of the nation of Israel. You've got to get it out. Why? Because it's evil. What will happen if you don't get it out? It spreads. What happens to the people it spreads to? They die. What death are we talking about? Permanent spiritual death. I've got, you've got to get it out. This rebellious, rebellious. How interesting the word rebellion. Again. What is he rebelling against? What is he refusing to obey? So let's ask some more questions. What is the evil that must be put away? Who are these people? Who are they? Who are they? The Jews. What Jews? It's Deuteronomy what? 21. What time in the history of Israel is this? What's going on? Who are these people? When? So what? when was this order given? When did God tell this nation to do this? What's going on in Israel at this time? The context is critical. You've got to know the persons. You have to know the place. You have to know the time. The who, the when, and the where. And the why. That will help greatly along with defining rebellious. A rebellious son. I can't say that enough. What is implied by the term rebellious? Let's just take that, and we'll do more of this next week. But if I can rebel, what am I? I can rebel. Yeah, I got free will. Very good. I have the ability to rebel. The rebellious son is a free will agent. So the next obvious question, why does he have free will? Why do you have free will? Why do I have free will? Why do all of us have free will? Very important to be able to answer that along with the defining of free will. Um, Just as an aside, really fast, there's two free wills, or so it seems. Perhaps it's better said that there is a restricted free will and an unrestricted free will. What I mean by that is the restriction being the capacity to reject God. Some have the, the capacity to reject God. Look around. Some do not have the capacity to reject God. Identify one of those. There's one in the red and one in the blue. They do not have the capacity to reject God. 
I have a Labrador Retriever that clearly has free will. Just ask her. She does not have the capacity to reject God. So there's a restrictive free will and an unrestricted free will. This rebellious son has the capacity to do something that is evil in the eye of God. He has the capacity to reject God. Now, what's going on at the time? Where is Israel? Where have they been? What are they doing? It's fascinating that free will that rises to the rejection of the Creator is rejecting the provider of the free will. That's ironic. Ultimately, you've got to consider the capacity to reject the Creator is the capacity to reject Jesus Christ. And that is the basis or the cause and effect, if you will, of accountability and condemnation or the end-destiny result for those who of their own free will reject Christ. So now we're to the motives for doing so. Why would somebody reject Christ? Why would somebody reject God? Who is what? Loving and good. But you have the free will capacity as a free will agent with unrestricted free will to reject love and goodness. You have that ability. And what does God call that? The evil. What is the motive for doing that? It seems inexplicable at first first glance, but it certainly isn't. So let me rephrase it. Why would somebody do this? Why would somebody reject their loving, good, just Creator God who has given them their very existence, sustains their very existence, and endowed them with the free will to reject Him? Why would they choose to do it? Why would they choose to do it? You could participate here. The obvious answer is that those who reject believe none of what I just said to be true. Let me repeat it. Why would somebody reject their loving, good, just Creator God who gives them their very existence, sustains their very existence, and is the one who sourced them with their free will? The ones who reject Him don't believe any of that statement. Does that make sense? They don't believe that he's good. They don't believe that he's loving. They don't believe that he's just. They don't believe he's creator. They don't believe that he gave them their very existence or that he sustains their existence. And they don't believe that he is the source of their free will. They believe none of that. They reject the entire statement. I want you to now think about the fallen angelic host while I move to John 20, 26. Yes. That's correct. Well, you're you're now headed to this definition. Who defines this? Who defines stubborn and rebellious? He also defines gluttony and drunkenness. We'll get to that as time goes. But again, out of all of that, I want you to recognize, did the angelic host, in what did they have? What access did they have? 
What did they see? What did they know? What did this rebellious son know? What did he see? What has he seen? What did he go through? How old is he? How old, do you think they were stoning to death? And by the way, it's all predicated on what word? If this happens, what's the obvious question then? Did it ever happen? See, now we'll get to that in a minute. Good. Good. You guys are beginning to fight your way through it perfectly. Okay? We're going to read John 20, 26 through 29, and I think that helps solve Deuteronomy 21, your rebellious son. I also think it, it solves Exodus 21 and James 2 for you. It's all piece of pie, easy as cake. So here we go. John 20, 26 through 29. I've read it before in this series, and, uh, and now you'll know why. And um, And after eight days... His disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came. This is a post-resurrection event. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, (coughs) and stood in the mist. And that in the mist is very important. He does everything in the mist, doesn't he? He's crucified in the mist of the two thieves. Everything in the mist. And he stood in the mist and said, peace to you. When God says peace to you, what's that mean? Salvation. That's good. I want to be one of the guys where he goes, peace to you. Or as Seth does. I'm learning all kinds of new 14-year-old completely worthless things. And I'm getting good at it. Okay. Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. This is very important. Underline it if you can. Do not be unbelieving. Who just said that to Thomas? What is that? That is a direct order. Do not be unbelieving, but Believing, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So Thomas saw something that made him realize that Jesus Christ is God. Creator God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas. And then this, this very important word right here. Because. Not good news, by the way. Because you have seen me, you have believed. What's he saying? What's implied? If you hadn't seen me, if you hadn't done what you just did, you wouldn't have believed. That's not good news. What's the obvious question now? Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they have believed. Now, I've got to erase the board because it's starting to get complicated. Okay. That should do it. Let me repeat it. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, it's very important, as most of you are aware, to notice the difference um, between Mary Magdalene and Thomas the twin. That's what he's called, Thomas the twin. 
Mary, just prior, just a few verses prior, was not able to touch Jesus Christ. She was told not to touch him. Thomas comes along in a few short verses, not even a paragraph, really, and he could. In fact, he was commanded to touch him. So immediately, what's the difference? Why could, why is it that Mary couldn't touch him and Thomas could, okay? Uh, the answer lies in the high priest typology. Christ is fulfilling high priest prophecy. He is in the role of, if you will, he is completing the, the picture that is the high priest and fulfilling all of that. And, and, but I need to set that aside. I get those questions all the time. I just wanted to get it out of the way so that everyone would know, especially the Internet people. I want you to notice again, however, this time through this passage, the physical aspects of Thomas's belief. The touching, the seeing. Reach your hand, or I'm sorry, reach your finger. So we got a finger. Look at my hands. So reach your finger and look at my hands, Christ tells him. Reach your hands. So Thomas's finger and his hand are involved. Put it in my side. So all of the touching and the seeing, the finger, the hand, the side, something extraordinary is occurring here. And I don't have time to cover it today, uh, but we'll do it. So what's that word? Soon. That's right. Uh, Any time up to three years from now. Right now, today, back up to John 20:25. Here's Thomas. And this is what Thomas says. The other disciple says, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas the twin. Called the twin. That's very important. He's a twin. Twins are all over the Bible. So Thomas said to them, unless, unless, okay, Unless, remember because, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Who's Thomas? He's one of the guys. That's a wow. He better do what? Or I will not believe. He better prove it to me. Or I'm not going to believe him. That's what Thomas said. And he says so. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Which means if he didn't come and he didn't do what Thomas wanted him to do, Thomas would not have believed. When God says something like that, it's pretty pretty clear that it's the case. Jesus Christ came to Thomas the twin and proved that he is God. Thomas, by the way, got the question right. He said, you are God. But Christ proved it. That is very important, this proving. Why did Jesus Christ go to Thomas and prove that he is God? He gives physical proof, touching, seeing, hearing, physical proof. I have people who say Thomas all the time to me. They say, I'm not going to believe unless he comes to me and does what I want him to do. I'm not going to believe. 
That's what you think you have that authority over God. I broke my pen. What is that? That is one of the most arrogant, ignorant statements in all of the Bible. And you will find the disciples do that a lot. And what did Christ do? He saved them. What's that? Goodness? Love? Humility? What would you have done to Thomas? Yeah, you'd have vaporized him, yeah. That's what you'd have done, because what are we? We are not pure good. We are not pure humility. But Christ did the opposite. He proves to him that he is God. He gave him that touching scene, hearing proof. But Thomas obeys Christ's order. Christ says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas obeys that direct order. And so, uh, in other words, he could have said it this way. Do not be unsaved, but be saved. That's the order. That is what you have to obey. You have to obey that order. And if you don't obey that order, what are you? You're this guy. The rebellious son, and you're evil. And what, ha- what do I have to do now if I am God? You have free will. But what do I have to do? I have to save the others, don't I? From who? From you. The rebellious son is the one who also... See, this is how it breaks down. Let me put it all in in as clear as I can. And hopefully you're way ahead of me and you've already asked the, the most obvious of the obvious questions... Uh, which would be, who's the opposite of Thomas? See, uh, This is how I do it. It's not the way most people do it. Does that surprise you? Uh, I, I call these uh, category ones and negative category ones. Okay, I have Thomas, a category one. Okay? The category one for Thomas is what? Someone who has seen, and what did he do? He believed. Yay! He is a seeing Believer. He had to see in order to believe. And that's okay. At least you believed. Who, what about the rebellious son back in Deuteronomy? What had he seen? He saw what? He saw a lot of things. Did he see God? Did he hear God? Did he see the Shekinah glory in the temple lighting up the Holy of Holies on top of The Ark of the Covenant. Now, he wasn't allowed to go in there, but could he see the reflection? Did he see Moses and Aaron? Did he see God come out as a fire? Did he hear his voice? Did he believe? No. He's the rebellious son. If it happened. So I have have negative category one. This will appeal to Troy. Those are the ones who have seen, if I got this right now, make sure I do it. No, no, I'm, I'm out of, I'm getting ahead of myself. Negative category one would be the opposite of that. These would be people who have not seen, who don't believe. How many of those we got in the world today? 
There's a lot of negative category one. And then I have category two, right? Who's category two? It says so. Blessed are category two. Okay, category two are the ones who have not seen. They are the not seers. Have you seen? But they believe. Those are category two. Those are also called the blessed. As opposed to the Thomases. Okay? Then I have a negative category too. What's that? Those are the ones who have seen, but they don't do what Thomas did. They don't believe. And that is the rebellious son. He saw, he didn't believe. In fact, all of Israel saw. How many unsaved people are there in Israel at that time? By the way, if these are the blessed, these are the ones that see, but they are unbelief, how much proof did these, these guys got? And they still don't believe. Who is that guy? Well, he's not the blessed. Who is he? He's the cursed. Why does God allow people to see and still not believe? What does it take to see and not believe? It takes free will. And by the way, what is the difference between the free will of the rebellious son who saw all kinds of things? Might have seen the Red Sea. Certainly saw the pillar of cloud. Certainly had the manna. Saw all of that. And still did not believe. Now, I have a lot of people that, that did a lot of things that weren't, weren't very good in Israel. How many of them got to this place? Got to negative cat two? Unbelief. Just because you believe, does that make you a, a good person? Look around. Those who have seen but did not believe. Think again, the angelic host. And now you know how John 20:25 20, fits with the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21:18 through 21. The rebellious son is one who saw but did not believe. He did not obey the direct order to believe, though he saw the ark of the testimony, he saw the Shekinah glory, he saw the pillar of cloud, he saw the manna, he saw the stone tablets written by the finger of God. He heard the voice of God. The rebellious son did not obey the commandment to believe, though he had seen. And so how many rebellious Israelites are there at this time? How many have seen and not believed? How many times did Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 occur? How many people were stoned? What's the first word? If this happens, stone them. How many people saw all of that incredible events? And still didn't believe. Again, how, what did the angel see that fell? <sighs> we can't even imagine. They believe God is God. Now we'll get into whether or not they think God is omnipotent, omniscient. We'll get to that in a second. Hopefully you are beginning to process the fallen angelic host, the rebellious son, with who else? People who see but don't believe. Where else are they going to show up in the Bible? 
Obviously, I got, you know, Thomas saw a whole bunch of stuff before God came and proved it to him. Again, let me put that up there. Proved. Very important to see this. That Christ comes and proves it to him. Who else does Christ come and prove it to? Well, there's no doubt. Are we going to come a place in our time? I hope so, by the way. Are we going to get to a place, are you going to see a place where the entire world knows that Christ is God and still hates Him? What do we call that period? A tribulation. Are they going to see all kinds of evidence? Is He going to prove it? Is it going to matter? What kind of person sees all that proof and it doesn't matter? How do you get to that spot? So I hope you see the tribulation. And then at the end of the millennium, by the way, just for fun here, the Christ is on the throne. You can go and see Him. You can hear Him. He is right there. How many people don't believe after the thousand-year period of Christ? How many people don't believe? Billions. Uncountable billions don't believe. They have the evil. It's inexplicable behavior? Obviously not. Because billions and billions will not believe in the millennial rule after they see Christ on the throne, a period of peace. Don't care. By the way, has there ever been a time where billions and billions of people had absolute proof that God is there and doing things and they didn't believe? And He had to do something. When was that? That's the great flood. That's the antediluvians, right? They could see the Garden of Eden. They could see the flaming sword. They could see the tree of life. They could see the cherubim guarding the tree of life. They could actually go and talk to Adam and Eve, who lived almost a thousand years, at least Adam. Did it matter? They could see angels. Some of them were products of angels and man. There was no doubt. Did it matter? They still had the free will capacity to reject God even though He sustains them, loves them, gives them their very existence, gives them the capacity to reject Him. Thomas the twin has has this proof theme that we have to get back to, this proof theme. Because where else do we have a proof theme that we're covering? You can do this. Obviously, I have a proof theme going throughout. Do I have a proof theme in... Do I have a proof theme in Exodus 21? What's going on in Exodus 21? Remember again, there's this theme of proving. The Hebrew servant plainly says, I love, and proves it. How? By being pierced. By being beaten. In James 2, the someone says, uh, James 2 has a proof theme. But someone says he believes, but does not prove it. In fact, does the opposite, does things that prove opposite. And and so I want you to know, added to the the antediluvians or the pre-flood world, and the angelic host, and the rebellious son of the Israelites, and Thomas, uh, and the millennial people and the tribulation people and the Pharisees. Did they see God in front of them every single day and talk to Him every single day? Did it work? 
Did they believe? You come to me and say, if I, if God would just show up and stand on this stage, if Jesus Christ would do that, I would believe. What are you? You're already in a mistake, aren't you? Chances that you believe ain't good. It's a miracle that Thomas is saved. It's a miracle that anybody is saved. Certainly a miracle that we're saved. But I want you to recognize James 2, that someone says, but who doesn't prove it with his, he says he has faith, he says he believes, but then he says to the, to the naked and the poor, uh, have a nice day, essentially, peace be with you. So there is no proof of what he says. The Hebrew servant in Exodus 21 plainly says, I love, and then goes out and proves it. And, and you see this piercing and this beaten. He's a slave. He humiliates himself. Once again, this incredible picture of Christ. James 2, he presents Abraham as what? Proof. He presents Rahab as proof. Abraham is one who saw God and, and sacrificed Isaac, didn't sacrifice him, presented him as a type of Christ on the exact same spot, the exact same a position of the same mountain, everything's the same, Isaac and Christ's crucifixion. Isaac, this incredible type of Christ. But Abraham saw all of that, and he what? He proved that he believed. How about Rahab? What did she get? A couple of guys knocked on her door, told her stories. she see anything? She heard some stories. What did she do? She believed. She's a not seen and believed. Where is she, by the way? She's in the messianic line. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Abraham saw and believed. How about James? How do you think he feels? Who's James? He's a brother. Half-brother, if you will. Different fathers. Duh. Same mother. How about Mary? How'd she do, by the way? None of the family of Christ believed he was God until when? Post-resurrection. James is a guy that saw him every day of his life. Didn't believe he was God. Mary didn't believe he was God. Sorry. Not really. They are ones that saw and did not believe until post-resurrection. How do you think James felt about that? Now, make the transition. Why does Jesus Christ prove to Thomas that he is creator God in the flesh? Why does the creator God in the flesh come to be pierced and beaten? What is proved by this? What's he doing? Why is the proof necessary? Why this particular way of proving that he's God and that he is saving us? Why did he do it the way he's doing it? And that kind of leads us back to the beginning in a way, sort of. Why do we have free will? What does human free will prove? Because it proves something. This is all this proof theme is everywhere in here. It's in Exodus 21, it's in John 20, it's in James 2. It's everywhere. That's the theme of this. That's what ties them together, proving this. What does human will prove? And to whom is it proved? What does angelic will prove? What happens if I don't have angelic will? What would be the accusation if human will did not exist? What would be God what would what would God be accused of? I'll help you here. 
What is the evidence? What does Satan say is the evidence of the proof of human will? The proof of human will is what? Rebellion. Against who? Against God. The proof of human will, that you have human will, is when you choose to reject God. Never mind when you choose to believe God. That's also a choice, right? That's also free will. Never mind that. If there was no human will, the first accusation against God is that he's what? He is afraid of something. What's he afraid of? Being rejected. And if he is rejected, what's the consequences of that rejection? Sin. What does sin do? Now you've made the case that God is afraid of what? He's afraid of sin. If you make him afraid of something, what have you done to his omnipotence? You've taken it away from him, haven't you? You've declared him to be afraid and unable to combat something or unable to solve something. And therefore, he's not omniscient. And he certainly isn't omnipresent because all three of them require the other in order to be true. Right? If there is no supernatural reality, there is no human will. Does that make sense to you? Let me repeat it. If there is no supernatural reality, there is no human will. That is the foundation of evolutionary philosophy, as you know. It is the cornerstone of it. Human will is an illusion, they say, if the mind is emergent from the physical processes of the brain. If the mind is reducible to particles, then there is no will. If there is no will, what is proved? And what is proved by human will? Those two are the opposites of each other, aren't they? If there is no will, what is proved? If there is will, what is proved? And once again, evolutionary monism cannot be put, is, is impossible to make it compatible. Okay, got to stop you there. I know you wish I would continue. Okay, not a single person wishes that. Next week, we will wrap up James 2 and Exodus 21. But you really don't need me now, do you? You should be able to do it on your own. You know something is proved. You know that it has something to do with human will. You know it has something to do with the rejection of God and the capacity to reject God. All of those do. And that is what James 2 was dealing with. That has nothing to do with salvation by works, which is what they will claim it says. Why would they claim it? Dirty, rotten scoundrels, that's why. Okay, let's rise and be dismissed.